So the next section of the work uh, is titled Sources of Law. And when we speak about sources of law, we're basically speaking about where, what are the places that we go to? Where do we go to consult around what the content of a law is, right? So you are confronted with a particular question as, as a lawyer, as a law graduate, and you would be empowered to know where it is you need to go to answer that question. So if your friend comes to you and says, I bought this uh, this uh, New Balance tackies from from the store, and uh, there are holes in the tackies, and the tackies not working the way it's supposed to. It's giving me sores on my feet, and can I take this pair of New Balance tackies back right six months after the fact? Then you should be able to know. Where is it that I go in order to answer my friend's question? Because as lawyers, you're not simply going to say, yes, you can take it back or no, you can't take it back. Your job is to give your friend an informed opinion. And in the process of giving that opinion, you need to consult various sources of law. So some of those sources of law that you're going to be consulting is what we refer to as codified law. And some of those sources of law are going to be uncodified law, right? We've spoken about these concepts previously. Codified law means it's been written down, right? It's been codified. It's in code. It's written. It's tangible. It's there. It's physical. You can pick up the an act. You can go to the library. You can pull an act from the shelf and you will have the particular legislation in front of you. So an act that parliament passes will be an example of codified law, legislation, right, where it's in black and white and it's there for everyone to see. It's written down. We also have what we refer to as uncodified law. And with uncodified law, we see that the law is not written down. So it's a question of you don't simply just go to legislation and point to Section 3 and says, according to Section 3, this is the legal position because it's law that is not written down, right? So, for instance, in South Africa, many of our, our laws around, around customary law is not in a certain textbook, is not going to be fine in a judgment. So, the question goes about how is it that we go about establishing what these various sources of law are and where it is that we can find them. So with the South African system, we don't have one unified system of, of, of law, one unified source of law. Remember, we spoke previously around the, the French system, the continental system. A lot of countries in Europe have codified systems where you have these lots and lots of legislation and all all of the laws governing that country can be found in that different pieces of legislation. It's codified. And that's not the case in South Africa, right? The other thing that I want you to remember at the start is that we have something that we refer to as binding sources of law and something that we refer to as non-binding sources of law, right? So binding sources of law means that when you consult with this particular source to answer your friend's question about the new balance stackies, right? You consult legislation uh, from the, let's say, um, the National Credit Act, right? To determine whether or not your friend um, can take his stackies back. You think maybe there's something in, in that legislation, right? And let's say in the National um, the Consumer Protection Act, right? So let's say you go to the Consumer Protection Act 
and there you see something that is relevant to your, to your friend's situation. In that instance, you're dealing with legislation, and this is law passed on by Parliament. And so if you flag this legislation in front of a court who has to pronounce on your friend's case, if your friend takes this matter to court and you point to this legislation in court and the, your friend flags this legislation with the presiding officer, with the judge or the magistrate, that presiding officer, that judicial officer is obliged to apply that law, is obliged to apply that legislation. And the reason why they are obliged to do so is because you're dealing with a primary source of law. Right, so I'll get into the question around primary sources shortly, but then you will also be instances where it's a source of law and you can put it up if you are representing your friend and you have a qualified attorney. You can put it before the judge and it is a source of law, but it's not a binding source of law. In those particular instances where you are using a source of law that is not a binding source of law, it means that the particular judicial officer, your judge or your magistrate can look at that source can consider that source in the course of their deliberation on the issue and whether your friend should be allowed to get his money back for his new balance stackies. But ultimately, the particular presiding officer is not bound to follow that particular source of law because it's a non-binding source of law. Right? So we distinguish between this concept of binding and non-binding sources because certain sources magistrates are obliged to follow, which are binding on them, and certain sources Magistrates are not obliged to follow, but can, can consider, right? Should consider, but they're not obliged to follow it, right? Because it only has persuasive value. So what do I mean by persuasive value? And this takes us into our discussion around primary sources of law and secondary sources of law, right? So a primary source of law is a law that has binding force, right? So like the legislation on the Consumer Protection Act, you're dealing with a primary source of law. All primary sources of law are primary sources of law because of the fact that the judicial officer is obliged to follow that law. It's a primary source of law when it's legislation because it's referred to as primary sources of law because when it's put before a judicial officer, the judicial officer is obliged to apply that law. Right. It is a secondary source of law when it's put before a judicial officer and a judicial officer is not obliged to follow that law, right? It, it has, it's a secondary source. It has, like I had mentioned previously, persuasive value. So you as an attorney, you go before the court and you say, Your Worship, um, I wish to uh, point the following out to you and you refer to these various pieces of secondary law and uh, the particular judicial officer, the magistrate can consider your, your secondary sources of law, can consider those sources that they put up. They may have persuasive value in that they could influence the thinking of the judicial officer in reaching a conclusion about your friend's new balance stackies and whether he gets his money back, but the judicial officer is not obliged to follow that law. So, of course, as an attorney, you will realize that a primary source of law is going to support your friend much stronger 
than a secondary source of law. But that is not to dismiss the importance and the value of secondary sources of law, particularly in instances where there is a lack of primary source of law. So if the question hasn't been legislated, if you can't find the answer to the particular legal question on the new balance that is in the Consumer Protection Act, or if the Consumer Protection Act had not been legislated and had not come into force, then your secondary sources of law would have great value because it will help the judicial officer decide what should the law, what is the law on this particular point, right? That secondary source will help the judicial officer in the judicial officer's deliberations. So when we refer to primary sources of law, we're referring to, for instance, to, of course, first and foremost, our constitution, because we know our constitution is legislation, for starters, it's been passed by Parliament. Secondly, we know it's the supreme law of our land. So, of course, it is binding. It is binding because the courts are obliged to follow our constitution and Parliament when they enact legislation must ensure that those laws comply with the constitution. So, now we have, as a primary source of law, the constitution. We've also established that a primary source of law is legislation. Another primary source of law you could be where you say, uh, Your Worship, I refer you to the case of X versus Z, in which Mr. Z had purchased uh, his Adidas tackies from uh, Company Y, and he had the tackies for a year, and there was problems with the tackies, and he was allowed to bring the tackies back, and they found that he was allowed to bring the tackies back on the basis of X, Y, and Z. Then the particular judicial officer would be bound in certain instances by that precedent, would be bound to follow that particular precedent, right? If it's a, a lower court and the high court has, has reached a particular finding on this Adidas case, the high court is now faced with this argument on the New Balance case, would have to follow the precedent that was set in the Adidas case, right? So if it was found in favor of Adidas, then chances are, because the, case, the court is now bound by the decision in the Adidas case, the court will then rule in favor of New Balance, right? If the court found in favor of the, the higher court found in favor of the person who purchased the Adidas, the lower court now has to apply the higher court's precedent, the lower court's going to find in favor of the person who purchased the New Balance tackies. Right. So now we know that you have precedent, you have case law, and case law is in most instances going to be binding. Like particularly if you're dealing with lower courts, a lower court has to follow a decision by the Supreme Court of Appeal. A lower court is bound by that decision. A lower court is also bound by decisions of the Constitutional Court, and the Supreme Court of Appeal is also bound by decisions of the Constitutional Court. So precedent is another example of binding law. So as an attorney, you go to court and you've prepared your papers and you know about X versus Z, then you know you're in a strong legal position because you've got this court case in this case that was decided in this man's favor that bought the Adidas tackies and it's going to help your friend. This good, good court case is going to help your friend with his case against New Balance. Right. So now you've got the constitution, you've got legislation, you've got precedent, you know that you've got the common law, um, as we discussed extensively in the previous uh unit uh, around the Roman Dutch law and how that is uh, forms part of now our, our common law is predominantly based on Roman Dutch law and that is another source of law that we can turn to. 
We've also spoken about customary law, right? We've spoken about customary law and that being a binding source of law under our constitution. Our courts are bound to follow customary law where the matter concerns a particular issue that falls under, that is to be decided under customary law. Courts are obliged to follow customary law. Another potentially binding source of law is international law, right? For this purposes, I want you to understand that there's a significant difference between what we refer to as ratification and non-ratification, right, of an international legal instrument, a treaty, right? So let's say we have the um, Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women, and if South Africa signs and what we refer to as ratifies that particular treaty, makes that treaty South African law, we sign on to it, we are state party to it, we are bound by the contents of that treaty, we are bound by what we refer to as CEDAW, the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women. That means if you go to court and you're a human rights attorney and you want to argue that your friend should be entitled to more maternity leave because a failure to do so discriminates against women in the workplace, you would be able to cite the treaty, you would be able to cite CEDAW to support your friend's case because South Africa has signed onto and has ratified and accepted CEDAW as part of our law, formally accepted CEDAW as part of our law, right? But then the question is, what is secondary sources? And international law can also be a secondary source of law. Because let's say that CEDAW is the, the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women, that international treaty is the. But South Africa has not signed on to the treaty. That means that if you want to bring the court case for your friend and say that the, that the employer is obliged to provide her with more maternity leave because the failure to do so discriminates against your friend in comparison to men who have, uh, uh, are found in the workplace, right? Men who find themselves in the workplace. Then in that particular instance, if you're the lawyer and you're standing up in court for your friend, you can still cite to CEDO, you can still cite to that convention. But now you're dealing with an issue with that particular convention. CEDO is no longer a primary source of law because South Africa didn't sign on to it. South Africa didn't formally adopt it. We didn't ratify it. So it doesn't have binding force. It is not a primary uh, source of law, but rather now, because we are not a state party to it, we see that it's a secondary source of law, right? Another secondary source of law would be a journal article. So let's say Ms. Dragger wrote an article on the inequality suffered by uh, pregnant women in the workplace and the implications uh, on, on pregnant women uh, when it comes to maternity leave and how this discriminates and the discriminatory impact that this ultimately has on pregnant women. And you now go to court and you want to argue your court case for your friend, you can put before the court the article that Ms. Dragger wrote and you will say to the court, Ms. Dragger in such and such an article, while you will say it in your papers to the court rather, has explained that um, there are various ways in which a failure to provide women with uh, X more amount of time of maternity leave discriminates against her and violates this right and that right and this right. And Ms. Dragger has explained how all of this happens in Ms. Dragger's article, in Ms. Dragger's journal article, right? Or Ms. Dragger wrote a textbook around uh, discrimination against women in the workplace, an entire book, then you can refer to that article or you can refer to that book, right? And that article and that book will be a secondary source of law. Other examples of secondary sources of law is, let's say, Canada 
or New Zealand for that matter. New Zealand tends to be quite um, groundbreaking. New Zealand comes up with a law and New Zealand says, um, let's say you are taking on a case for your friend and he's only getting three days uh, paternity leave and he works for SABC and he wants to challenge SABC because they're only giving him three days paternity leave and he says that's a discrimination on the basis of the fact that he's a man, right? So now you want to make a court, you want to make an argument out for your friend and you start doing some legal research and you go and look at your secondary sources of law and there you see, well, in Canada, in New Zealand, men get up to two months paternity leave. So you are able to put that into your court papers for the court that the legal position in New Zealand, if you consult the Fathers in Workplace Act 106 of 1995, whatever they, however they cite in the New Zealand context, um, Section 6 and 7 allows um, men to have up to X amount of time paternity leave, right? Then in that particular instance, you can refer to that foreign law because foreign law, the law of Canada, the law of New Zealand, the law of Zimbabwe, the law of Namibia, foreign law, right? Laws of other sovereign nations have persuasive value on our courts, right? They are a source of law in our courts, but they are a secondary source of law recognized by our courts because they do not bind our courts. Our courts do not have to follow them, but our courts can be persuaded by them because as a non-binding source of law, it has persuasive value and can have persuasive force when it comes to a judicial officer having to look at all of the different sources of law and ultimately make a, a pronouncement on a court case or where you have to prepare legal opinion you can include the position in New Zealand or the position in Canada on the paternity issue because that is still relevant from a legal perspective but it's less relevant than what for instance, South African legislation has to say on the issue or what the constitution has to say about gender equality is more important because the court is obliged to follow it. It's a primary source of law. What New, what New Zealand has done in terms of paternity leave and ensuring that men are not discriminated against is not a primary source of law. It is a secondary source of the law and therefore it only has persuasive value as opposed to our constitution, which is binding on us. And so you need to recognize as lawyers, you need to be empowered as lawyers, you recognize these various sources of law, but you also recognize the strength that is attached to these various sources, because which sources you rely on will ultimately influence how strong your legal arguments are. And that is not to say that you need to necessarily limit yourself only to A, B, and see sources of law, because perhaps if you are to prepare an opinion on the matter, a thorough opinion might include um, some secondary sources of law if a particular issue calls for as much.